Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us again today as we delve into God's Word. Today we're going to be in the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. So that's Romans chapter 12. There is some beautiful language, but even more importantly, a beautiful message for us in the text today. So I welcome you as you join us with this study. Now, if you're new to our study and the way I do things as part of this podcast, I want to encourage you, don't just join us at chapter 12, although you could do that and it stands alone pretty well, but you're missing out on so much. Back up and join us with chapter one of Romans and work your way up to where we are. There's a wealth of background and a a framework for the discussion that Paul is having with the church at Rome that you're just not going to get joining us at this point. So I welcome you. I'm glad you're with us today as we seek to grasp hold of what God has for us in his word. Hence the name of the podcast, Grasping Scripture. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you We thank you that you have saved us, that you, through Christ, atoned for our sin, that you gave us the opportunity of right relationship with you, and that, Father, you speak to us through your word, and you give us the opportunity to come together, even in a format such as this, to delve into your word to understand it, to truly take hold of it and apply it to our hearts and our lives so that we might be found faithful as we seek to follow you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we pick up in chapter 12, Paul has shifted gears a little bit in his talking to the church at Rome. He has now moved not from this explanation of the difference between law and grace and that it is through grace we are saved or through faith and and as of God's grace that we are saved, but instead as believers, as those living in faith and following God, What should our lives look like as a people of faith in Christ? How does that play itself out in a very practical sense, in a pragmatic sense? Because our Christian faith isn't just something that we claim to have eternally. It's not just a a preset framework of mental constructs that we're, we're happy with and we order our universe by, but it's fundamentally about centering our lives on Christ. And what it looks like when we live a life that is centered on God's word and on the Christ. And so we find ourselves in 12 and Paul gives some very, very simple and practical direction to us here in the 12th chapter. And I want to encourage you just become familiar with the 12th chapter of Romans. It is, it's pithy. It, it's actually pretty easy to memorize. It's not a long chapter, it's 20 verses or 21, but it, well, now I got to get that right. 21 verses. Um, but it is just such a wonderful teaching. It's a good thing to know by heart. Well, let's delve into this 12th chapter. It begins this way. Paul says, and so dear brothers and sisters. So in light of chapters one through 11, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. 
Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Wow. That's all in the first verse. What does he mean by that? Now, different translations render that a little different, but the gist is the same in all of them. It comes down to him saying, look, I'm urging you, I'm pleading with you, brothers and sisters. Who are the brothers and sisters? Those that know Christ. He's pleading with believers. I plead to you to do what? To give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Now, what he's talking about there is literally to let your bodies do the things that glorify God instead of the things that glorify the flesh. Instead of the things that that reflect this world, let them reflect that relationship with God. He's talking very literally about how you live your life. If you know Christ, then part of that is that you are going to live as if your body is an offering to God. Lord, here's my body. Let's make it do what you want. It will live in service to you, which means my behavior, my actions, the things I do should all reflect that relationship with Christ. That's what it is to let our bodies be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that God will find acceptable. He says this is truly the way to worship him. We do worship services. We have worship songs. We, we, we do all these things that we call worship, but the reality is for the believer in relationship with Christ, every part of our lives, every activity, everything we do should be worship. Our work, our, our day-to-day work, our jobs, our family life, our recreation should all be worship. We sell it all so short and really so cheaply when we start thinking worship is this thing that that happens on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock or whenever your tradition or your particular church or, or maybe it's the time that you set aside, <clears throat> whatever that situation is, you know, don't relegate worship of God to just one hour a week or just a few hours a week as a believer in Christ and in fellowship and relationship with him, every moment of our lives should be worship. And that's what Paul is pleading for here, that this is how we truly worship him. It's with all of our lives, with our very being. He goes on in verse two to say, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I encourage you, this is a great chapter to memorize. If nothing else, learn those two verses, verses one and two, because one talks about what our relationship with God ought to look like. And the second one, talks about what that relationship brings about in our life. Paul is saying, look, don't do it the way you see this world doing it. 
Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. The values of this world, the way this world treats one another, the way this world resolves conflict, the way this world um, deals with people who are are behaving badly or destructively towards themselves or others, you know, whatever the context you want to put it into, the reality is that we as believers are called to be different, not just act different, be different. And that difference is our relationship with Christ, is the love of God residing in our lives and flowing out through our lives. And if that is the reality then we should not look like the world. We should not think like the world or behave like the world. Literally, we shouldn't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. But we should let God transform us, change us into a new person. How? By changing the way we think. We should desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, to look more and more like Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we, you know, physically look like Jesus. It means we start seeing the world more and more the way Christ sees the world. We start loving the people around us more the way Christ loved the people around him. We start valuing people the way Christ valued the people around him. However you want to apply that in any aspect of life, it is still true. We're called to be different. In fact, in our relationship with God, we've left the world behind and we are to let God transform Form us into a new person by changing the way we think. But then he goes on to explain a little bit more about that. Not only do I begin to think differently because God is changing the way I think. I have people come to me as, as a pastor and ask me, well, how do I know what God's will is? I want to follow God, but I don't know what God's will is. Paul gives us a little clue here in these two verses. If we will worship God with our lives, with our bodies, if we will live a life that brings glory and honor to God, and if we will turn our back on the way the world does things and allow God to transform the way we think and therefore the motivations that drive us to do the things we do, if we let those two things happen, our actions and our thoughts, to be in line with God, then there's something that happens. Then you will learn to know what God's will for you is. You want to know what God's will for your life is? Follow him with your life. And he will make it evident. He will make known to you his will. But the truth is, if you're not willing to let God shape the way you think or the way you see or perceive or interact with the world, and you're not willing to serve him with what you do with your body, with the way you live out your life, then what does it matter if you know God's will for you or not? You're not going to do it because you're already rebelling against God. You're already not living in fellowship and obedience with him. So it kind of becomes a ridiculous question. Well, I want to know what God's will is. I'm not living with what I know his will is now, but I want to know what his will is. Paul is saying, look, you get your life in line with God. 
you start giving your your existence, your life as a living sacrifice to be lived for God. You start allowing God to fundamentally transform you into a new person with a new way of thinking, with a new way of prioritizing and seeing and valuing. And then understanding what God's will is for you actually becomes kind of a simple thing. It becomes an obvious thing for you. As Paul says, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. It is an awesome thing. But if you're not willing to pursue the will of God in your life, then it's a ridiculous ask, question to ask, what is the will of God in your life? But Paul lays out this framework that, look, we surrender ourselves, all that we are, and we allow God to change how we perceive, how we understand, how we think, how we value, transforming our minds. Then, then we're in a position to hear God's will for us and to follow it. Well, Paul continues on in verse three. He says, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Uh-oh. So now he's talked about being living sacrifices and being transformed and knowing the will of God. And now he's pulling out a warning. What could he be warning us? Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Now, in today's world, we call having a healthy self-esteem. We used to call that ego trip. Um, don't think of yourself better than you are. Now, don't think of yourself less than you are. You are valuable in the sight of God. In fact, what I like to tell people, and it's kind of a, a almost a gross encapsulation of, of the gospel is this in the eyes of God. If you want to know what you're worth, you are worth one Jesus because that's what he paid to redeem you is one Christ on the cross. So don't sell yourself short, but don't get arrogant. Don't get boastful. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us, or some translations of faith God has given you. What does that mean? Does it mean each of us should uh, evaluate ourselves, um, grade ourselves based on the level of our faith? I have more faith than you, therefore I'm better than... No. It's actually this faith in Christ that is given to us. That is the faith God has given us. Our relationship with Christ, this faith that brings about salvation. That's how we should evaluate ourselves. If I was worthy of hell for eternity, and by the way, I was, and it is only by faith placed in Christ faith placed in God and his mercy and his grace that brings about my salvation, that gift of God given to me. And if you and your only claim to significance, to faith, to, to, to life 
is the faith that you have placed in Christ, because just like me, you were a sinner deserving of hell for eternity, then can I really think of myself better than you? And can you really think of yourself better than me? But instead, we both approach the foot of the cross in humility and gratefulness to God. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. Now here he's switched to a metaphor. He's talking about the church, the body of believers, all of the redeemed, all those that trust in faith in Christ and have received salvation. That's who he's talking about as the body of Christ. He says, we are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Again, it's this idea of humility of we all deserved one thing, but through the grace of God and through faith in him got something else. And that puts us on equal footing. Now, are we all the same? No, we have different functions. We look different. We act different. We, there's so many differences, and yet we are all part of one body. There's no part of my body that's exactly like any other part of my body. They all have different functions. It's kind of intuitive to us. We all live in our bodies, so we know this. And Paul is just pointing out this reality that God is revealing through him the body of Christ. It is varied, and yet it is one. What makes it one, what makes it all equally the body is Christ and faith in him. He goes on in six. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you, well, let me stop there. Let's just take the first sentence of verse six. In his grace, God has given us different gifts, gifts for doing certain things well. Again, he's still working with this metaphor of the body. He's still saying, look, you know, you shouldn't become arrogant. You shouldn't think more highly of yourself than you ought, is the way one of the translations reads it. It says, don't think you are better than you really are, but be honest in your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us, that equal footing. God has granted us gifts for his service. As he's calling us to do something in his kingdom, he equips us by his spirit to do what he's calling us to. Uh, one of my favorite books on the Holy Spirit, uh, Gordon Fee's book, God's Empowering Presence. Uh, I love that. It's a study of, of the Holy Spirit in the writings of Paul what Paul has to say about it and the doctrines that are formed there. But the basic idea is that what God calls us to, he empowers us for through his Holy Spirit, those gifts in his grace, we're all part of the same body, different functions in his grace. God has given us different gifts, gifts for doing certain things. Well, now the rest of it. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, Speak out with as much faith as God has given you. What about prophecy? What is it? If God has given you the gift of foretelling the future, well, actually, we see a little bit of that in Scripture. 
uh, even in the New Testament over in Acts, we see a little bit of God revealing to certain individuals needed information about what was coming. But in large part throughout the Old and New Testament, those that were gifted as prophets were those that foretold the word of God, not just foretold. Uh, they're not just predictive. They are able to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. They're able to say, this is how our lives look, or this is how our world looks, but this is what God says, and here's where they don't match up. And we need to get in line with God. Those are prophets proclaiming God's word to the people. Some he is gifted for that. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If God's gifted you for that, do it. Don't sit around and go, yeah, I can serve others and I seem to be gifted at that, but man, prophecy. Oh, man. No. No. One body, many parts. God has called you and gifted you. Live in that calling and in that giftedness. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. How awful it is if God has gifted you with the ability to be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you hide that. You hold back for whatever reasons. You just don't do it. They have suffered and you have suffered. That's really true with all the gifts. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is, to, if it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take that responsibility seriously. Lead. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, then do it gladly. That's not an exhaustive list of things that God gifts us for in his body, in his kingdom, things he calls us to do and to be by the power of his spirit. But it is a, a representative sample, if you will. It is a, a small array of giftedness to very quickly and practically say, look, what has God gifted you? What has God empowered you by his spirit to do in his kingdom? Don't focus on everything else. Don't focus on, oh, I wish I had that, or I want to be that. But understand you are part of the body. You're part of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ to function well needs to function as the parts that they are called to be. So whatever it is God has called you to, do it. Whatever it is God has gifted you for, do it. Just do it. Do it with a joyful attitude. Do it with the right heart. Do it. Picking up in verse 9, he kind of sums it all up, packages it up. And you've heard this in other letters of Paul as well, if you've done much study elsewhere. He says, do not pretend to love others. Really love them. And actually, the term he's using there for love, the Greek term, is, is the type of love that you would have among family members. And he's, to some extent, talking about 
in the body of faith here. This is in large part a discussion of what life looks like inside the church, inside the fellowship of the redeemed. And he's saying, don't just pretend to love others. Oh, I'm supposed to be nice to them, so I'll try to care. No, really love them. Love them like they're family, because guess what? In Christ, they are family. So really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. What? Yeah, we should rejoice together. We should celebrate together. We should honor each other. Instead of being jealous about that other person and their giftedness and how God is using them, we should celebrate what is happening in their life. We should celebrate their service in the kingdom. And we should understand we have our place of service in the kingdom. We are our part of the body of Christ. And God has gifted and called us to do our thing there. And if we're all celebrating each other, we're all going to be built up and lifted up and maybe in some way better at being the body of Christ. Verse 11, he goes on and he says, never be lazy. Never just sit back and let it coast. He says, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically as the body of Christ. Jesus was not a couch potato. He didn't call you to be a couch potato, especially spiritually. He's calling you to be his body. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. You see, when we're in right relationship with God, when we live our lives as sacrifices to God, living sacrifices, when we allow God to transform our minds, our way of thinking, and live as a new creature, and when we start doing what he's gifted and called us to do, then we're going to find it's a whole lot easier to face hardship. And yet to keep on praying, to stay connected with Christ in prayer, to bear up under hardship because we know that there is hope, an abiding hope that surpasses all of this, uh, as Paul says here, a confident hope. Rejoice in your confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. How do we make it through? How do we, we go through the struggles of living out our faith in this world as, as individuals, as, as collectively, as a church, as a congregation, as a kingdom of God? By rejoicing in our confident hope. By being patient in the troubles that we face. Because the promise was never there wouldn't be troubles. But be patient in those troubles and keep on praying. It says, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them, to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Pray that God will bless them. I know there's some today, I've heard them, they're like, oh, we need to pray God will curse them. You know, there's those imprecatory prayers in Psalms, you know, 
David calling on God to make him suffer. Right here in God's word. Verse 14, chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Does that sound familiar? Like maybe Jesus said it. Uh huh. Paul's not directly quoting, but he is referencing in these few verses. He is referencing ideas and statements that Jesus made that the early church would have known, and they needed brought back to that. Because there was animosity between the church and the Roman world. There was animosity between the Jewish background and the Gentile background. There was lots of animosity to go around. But Paul is focusing on the positive. He is saying, look, we need to turn away from all of that, the way the world deals with it, the world's attitudes. We need to give ourselves as living sacrifices to God. We need to allow him to transform who we are fundamentally down to the way we think. And we need to live for him as a body of believers, as his body, which he has called to different functions and gifted for different functions. And we need to encourage each other. We need to celebrate for each other in what is going on in his body. And when we get all that right, then we're going to find we're in a place where we can place our confidence in him, our hope in him. We can be patient in him. We can stay in communication with him. And when we see that some of our fellow believers are in need, because we celebrate together, we also stand with each other. We can be ready to help, always eager to practice hospitality, to care for one another. And when we are at disagreement, when we're at odds, whether it's in the body or even outside the body, we can bless those that persecute us. We don't curse them. We pray that God will bless them. So again, picking up in 14, bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Oh, how often that precedes us making bad choices or saying hurtful things, doesn't it? When we, in our minds, think we've got it all figured out. I know what's going on in their life. I know about this situation. I know what can be said to fix this problem. We become arrogant in our thinking. We begin to think we know it all. And the truth is, we don't. We're not called to know it all. We're called to love all. And that's kind of a big difference. And I'll tell you, full disclosure here, my personality type, I'm a fixer. You bring a problem to me, I want to give you the answer. I want to give you steps to remedy the problem you're having, or I just want to step in and fix it for you. And all of that is rooted, I'm ashamed to say, in a certain sense of arrogance. Because my desire to see your pain stop, 
leads me to a point where I think I have all the answers. And the truth is, I'm not even sure what all the questions are. But I know Christ. And I know he loves you. And I know he has the answers. And so I need to love you and show you the love of Christ. That's what it's about. So as harsh as it sounds when Paul says it, live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Now, as he closes out this chapter in the last few verses, he's still giving some very practical advice, but he's talking about uh, as we deal with people we're in conflict, how do we, how do we handle that? How do we behave towards one another? You've seen hints of it already with not being too proud to enjoy ordinary people's company and, and about weeping with those that weep and, and being happy, joyous with those that are happy and living in harmony with each other. But when we get to verse 17, he goes a little deeper and still he's relating the same ideas that Jesus related. This isn't a new teaching. He's pointing them back towards Jesus without directly quoting Jesus, although he is about to quote a couple Old Testament passages. In verse 17, he says, never pay back evil with more evil. Now, see, I say don't usually or try not. He said, never pay back evil with more evil. When you do evil, guess what? It's evil. It doesn't make it okay that someone else did evil too. Well, I just gave them back what they gave me. Wrong answer. Christ never called you to that. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Doesn't mean everyone's going to acknowledge you as honorable, but be honorable. Live Live as a person of character, a person of integrity. Live in obedience to Christ and everyone will be able to see that you are honorable. Again, you may not get acknowledged for it, but it's still the truth. Verse 18, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Now, is it going to be possible to live in peace with everyone? No. And there are going to be some lines we cannot cross for the sake of being at peace with everyone our allegiance to Christ, our obedience to him. You know, if I've got an atheist friend and, and the only way he feels he can really be friends with me and we can be on the same page is if I renounce Christ. Well, guess what? He and I aren't going to see eye to eye on that point. We're not going to get along on that point. But as much as it depends on us, in other words, I need to love people. I need to not be a jerk. I need to not be arrogant and think I know it all. I need to just love people, care about them. And part of caring about them is caring enough to share the truth with them. As much as it depends on me, I need to live at peace with everyone. He goes on in 19, dear friends, never take revenge. Again, this is very much like never pay back evil with more evil. Dear friends, never take revenge. He doesn't go on to say, except when you know you're right and they're guilty. He doesn't say that. He says, never take revenge, but then he doesn't say there won't be justice. 
the rest of the verse, leave that to the righteous anger of God. For scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, well, before we get to the instead, let's look at 19 a little bit more. Because you may say, well, you know, but wait, if they turn to God and seek forgiveness, he will forgive them. And he cleanses them of their sin and he declares them a new creature. And so where's the justice? Where is the revenge? Where is the payment for the evil that they did? Oh, it's there. You see, when God says that, well, he's got his righteous anger, his wrath, those that reject his forgiveness are recipients of his wrath. We, we see that already in the verses we've covered. And they face an eternity in hell, separated from God, in torment. But Christ on the cross, taking the penalty for my sin and your sin, is also that satisfaction of God's justice. Because the wages of sin is death. The wrath of God, the justice of God, levied against those that are guilty, is death. But in his love for us, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still objects of wrath, while we were still guilty, deserving of death because of our sin, Christ died for us. There's going to be justice. There's going to be, if you will, revenge. And it will all be paid for. Either by those who choose to take that wrath, that payment, that revenge upon themselves, or those that place their faith in Christ and he bore it on the cross. There are consequences for sin and rebellion against God. And his justice demands that it be paid for. And his mercy leads him to step in and offer to pay it for us. Because God is just, but he is also merciful. Now, he says he'll take revenge. I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So it's not on us to do it. Leave it in his hands. And then in verse 20, what does he call us to do? How does he call us to behave? See if this sounds familiar. It's from Proverbs. He says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. They're going to be so uncomfortable because you've loved them. And you know what that discomfort will do? In many cases, it will drive them towards God. So let God take care of the wrath part, the revenge part, the justice part. He calls us to love. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. 
And then verse 21, closing out the chapter. Don't let evil conquer you. How do we do that? Well, when we do all these things contrary to what God is calling us to, when we don't live as as living sacrifices, when we don't let God transform us, when we don't love our neighbors, when we don't do the things he's gifted and called us to, when we act in our rage and our desire for revenge instead of building each other up and acting in love, when we don't live in peace, but we seek to live in conflict, don't let evil conquer you. But conquer evil by doing good. Conquer evil by doing good. What is good? Everything Paul has already laid out in this 12th chapter. Living sacrifices, transformed mind, new creature, living in love, living out those callings, those tasks that you have been gifted for by the Spirit of God being one body, being at peace with one another, weeping together and being happy together. All of those things, meeting needs when those needs are known. That's how we conquer evil by doing good. We follow Christ with our lives. Now, are you following Christ with your life? Have you turned to him in faith? Have you trusted in his forgiveness, his atoning work on behalf of you? If you haven't, now's the time. If you have trusted in him, live like it. Put chapter 12 into practice in your life today and see what sort of fruit that bears. See what impact that has. At the very least, you're going to be able to know what God's will for you is. And it is a pleasing and perfect and good will. Let's put your trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do trust in you. And we thank you for your word, for the encouragement that we find in these verses to live our lives for you, to surrender, to surrender ourselves unto you as living sacrifices and to trust in you to empower us and to change even the way we see things, the way we think about things, that we may glorify you, that we may be different than this world, pointing a lost and dying world that is hurting towards you. Lord, we pray you will use us in that fashion. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.